First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. Okay, well, here we are. Reading in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not believe I've preached out of this book yet. The books of 1 and 2 Timothy are books written by the Apostle Paul, of course. 1 Timothy, sometime around 63 AD. Paul is behind the first-person perspective we read here. And in this passage, kind of like the book as a whole, we see Paul sort of urging Timothy, right, verse 1, to care for the affairs in the church. And in particular, we see that the message here in this passage is really focused on the urge to include all people in prayer, especially leaders, verses 1 and 2. There's a logic here. The logic is that there is only one God, verse 5, and because this one God really wants, he really desires, like the scripture says in verse 4, all people to be saved, the logic is that we should be praying for all people. So that's what Paul is saying here. It's what we're going to focus on this morning. And um, essentially, again, because there is only one God who even died for us, we read in verses 5 and 6, this God is therefore the God of all people, even the Gentiles, in verse 7, even the sinners, in other words, which is why Paul kind of brings this up and even asks for the kings and the rulers to be prayed for. These would be Gentile kings at this point. Okay. So to start us off, I want to ask us all a question this morning. And I'm going to ask the question very carefully because of the nature of the question. My intent is, of course, not to offend anyone. Maybe a little bit of offense is okay because we are dealing with God's Word. But really, I'm just trying to get us to think about this passage critically. I believe it's what God's Word is obviously telling us to do. But it is a, a very difficult thing. So here's the question. In your life, one point or another, maybe even right now, have you ever had trouble praying for certain people? Or in your life, have you ever had a hard time praying for a certain someone in your life? Uh, you know, have you ever had trouble praying for the enemies in your life? In my own life, this has been a difficult thing. On a grander scale, have we ever had trouble praying maybe for people in charge of, let's say, the enemy countries, international level? 
And then here's the final question. Have we ever had any trouble praying for the people in charge of, of this country? I think you all begin to see what I'm getting at. Paul says here that after we should be praying for all people, he goes out of his way to specifically name the kings and all those in authority. Verse 2. So, if you, like me, are reminded of Jesus' similar saying, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew five forty four. I think we should put these words together, the words of Paul and the words of Jesus, to go out of our way to pray first for our leaders, even our enemies, as Jesus said, leaders included, as Paul says, those who persecute us even. So from both Paul and Jesus, we are being told in God's word to pray for the most unlikely of people. And this is actually quite the shocking thing. Um, I'm sure we can all understand it is hard to pray for the enemies in our lives. Well, despite this, the truly shocking nature of praying for the opposition, there is a logic to it even here. I don't think it's what most people think it is, so we're going to talk about it. Verse 2 says, pray for the kings and the leaders, quote, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's verse 2. I have to ask, what does Paul mean that we may live quiet lives? Does Paul mean that we are supposed to be praying like this as Christians, you know, so that we can kind of live sheltered, uh, quiet lives, sort of never hurting nobody kind of thing? Maybe you've encountered this attitude. Well, no, I don't think so. I don't believe that it's saying that we are supposed to live quiet lives or that we are supposed to, for example, just sort of blindly support our leaders or our enemies, no matter what the wicked things they are doing. Actually, I think that great, great harm has been done in the past because, well, even right now, people think that this and other passages mean that we're supposed to sort of live this quiet life, supposed to is the key word, live this quiet life where we just support whatever the government or non-government um, evil actions occur. Uh, maybe even in church leadership, great harm has been done. Maybe even people in our lives who take advantage of us. Well, well, no, we're not supposed to just let evil prevail. That's not the message here. Yes, we are supposed to turn the other cheek, but like the book of James says in James 4.17, Whoever knows the right thing to do, yet fails to do it, is guilty of sin. James 4.17. So, we do not sit idly by when evil occurs. The message of the gospel, and here in our scripture today, is that, yeah, we're supposed to live certain way, a certain way as Christians, and that way is not a quiet way, but rather in a way that expends all energy and all effort in Christ uh, to shine the light of the gospel to those people that need it most. God does this through us. Why is this the case? And not just so that we can be quiet? Well, because Paul says, the logic again, there is one mediator. One mediator between God and human beings. The one Savior, Jesus. This one and only Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. So because there is only one God, 
this one God necessarily has to be the only God for all people. And because this one and only God further died for us, he desires all people to be saved. Christ died for all people, which is the very reason why we should be praying for all people. Not so that we can just live sort of comfortable lives, you know, um, but so that we may, they may, be saved by the power of God's gospel. Talking about the power of prayer. And by the way, the power of prayer is the power of God. The crazy thing about the gospel is that God wants to save those enemy people too. This is a hard truth to swallow. Book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 11 says, God does not show favoritism. This is the difficult truth. And it's not just regarding our enemies, of course. It's talking about us, personally. God wants to save even the wickedest, most disgusting person that we can all possibly think of. This is the shocking truth of the gospel. We should be offended by this. The gospel is offensive by nature. Um, the gospel, in its kernel form, was offensive even for Jonah. Jonah was offended. He ran from God because God, well, he figured God would probably end up saving his enemy country, Nineveh. Well, as I was saying, the very reason that God saved even us ourselves, of course, we who call ourselves Christians, like the Bible says, all have sinned. It's the same reason God saved us. God, quote, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 Okay, well, last week I preached on the scripture Psalm 51. In Psalm 51.5 and Psalm 51.6, scripture there teaches us that from birth we all require the saving grace of God to be saved. It says we're sinful from birth. However, got to thinking about this, from a simple common sense perspective... All of us will agree, I think, that, you know, uh, no one is born as someone with evil machinations to go and do something incredibly evil. For example, no one is born as a, a serial killer. And I don't mean to be rude, but I mean to get the truth across. Everyone will agree that when folks are born, they simply have the mind of an infant. No one is born with extremely evil intentions. Now, I'm not denying that we're sinful from birth, but what I am saying is that these types of people, and there are many famous examples, um, who become this way, they grow up badly. They get hurt. They learn wicked things. And they go and they do wicked things because they do not have the Lord. And I think this is what Paul is really getting at. Yes, we all need salvation. That is the truth. But what if instead of being isolated and further hurt, you know, these sorts of people had someone praying for them long before they committed their terrible deeds? What if these people are personal enemies or, you know, the leaders of the enemy countries, the leader of ISIS, for example, what if all of these people, because we prayed for them first, 
were utterly transformed by the grace and the love of God? What if they put Jesus first instead of their own desires? What if instead every single thing they did was for the good and for God? I have to say that our world today would look very, very different. Uh, the message of the gospel is that Christ saves, and the repentance of changed lives changes the world for good. So if our leaders, even our enemy leaders, put Christ first, imagine the kind of good world we would have today. This is why Paul and this is why Jesus are talking about praying for our enemies and praying for our leaders who are in charge of many. All of this is the work of God. It is oriented towards the goal of salvation for all people. This is God's desire. 1 Timothy 2.4 Okay. I mentioned that uh, this letter, 1 Timothy, was written sometime around 63 AD. Some scholars say sometime around 64, 65 AD. Okay, it's sometimes difficult to pinpoint exactly historically when. But the first documented case, the first documented case of government-supervised, ordered uh, persecution of Christians, this would be in the Roman Empire, of course, or you might say ever, begins with the emperor Nero. You may have heard of him. He ruled from 37 to 68 AD in Rome. In 64 AD, right around the time of Paul writing this letter, 1 Timothy, a great fire broke out in Rome, destroying whole portions of Rome and devastating the population. You may have heard about this. You may have heard about the popular legend claiming that Emperor Nero played the fiddle as Rome burned at the time of the fire. Fun fact, this is an anachronism, really, because the fiddle wasn't invented until about a thousand years later. But the point is that Nero himself started this fire. He proceeded to blame it on Christians... Because Christians at the time were a, a small group, minority group. They were upsetting the social structure of the day, you know, because the uh, wicked powerful are sort of always trying to remain powerful. But Christians, true Christians, will practice peace and justice and will upset things, will shake things up. Nero ordered the Christians to be thrown to the dogs while other Christians were in fact ordered to be crucified or burned. So, this is another layer. Imagine this. When Paul says to pray for rulers, we should think, who was the ruler at the time Paul wrote this? This ruler was Nero, who is persecuting, burning, and throwing us to the dogs, literally. Paul says to pray for him. Why does Paul say this? So that we can live so that we can literally live peacefully and quietly, in other words, not being targeted for execution and for death for being a Christian. We should pray for the leaders' salvation, in fact, so that instead of persecuting us, they actually go and do positive things for the gospel. And of course, as we've been saying, God desires their salvation, and so should we, because then they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. Well, Paul says in verse 7 that he was appointed a herald and apostle for this reason. His job is to declare this truth, and it is a shocking truth. It is the gospel. 
And if you notice, there's almost an interjection here. Paul is pleading like, he says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I'm a true and faithful teacher of even these sorts of Gentiles. Paul says God wants all people to be saved, even Nero. That's why Paul's trying to plead with them and say, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people, even you and I. So in his context, again, he means not only the Jews, the historical people of God, but even these kings of the Gentile enemy. God died for them. So that's why Paul is saying, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. This is the gospel. It's offensive by nature because the darkness hates the light. Check out John's prologue, John 1, 4, and 5. The gospel, in a nutshell, is that Christ died for all people, not just the Jews or those who consider themselves to be predetermined by birth to be saved. It's what Paul here is simply reiterating. The most radical thing of all, the thing that ties it all together, is verses 5 and 6. This is where... Paul reminds us that there is the one God and one Savior, but that this Savior gave himself as a ransom for all of us. The old truth is that Jesus came to die on that cross, the old story of the cross, to die for you and for me, and actually this is quite offensive. There are many people in the world, maybe even people who are in the room this morning, you know, we start to believe that we're too far gone for God. I think there could be people even here this morning who believe that they are not deserving of God. And to all of these people, maybe even to you, I want to say with Scripture and with Paul, who prays for Nero, that God wants all people to be saved. And he means you too. And come to the truth. And you know, I'm up here a lot. Pastors sometimes get put on pedestals. I will not deny to you that I have done bad things in my life. That we are sinners from birth, as the psalm says. The good news is that God will not deny that you and I have done bad things either. The whole reason the Bible exists is because God acknowledges us. God acknowledges you and me, and the bad things that I have done in my own life. In fact, God sent the one mediator, the one ransom, the one and only son, so that only in him and through him only, by his paying the price for what we did, we could be free to actually live a life for God, and in God, and through God. Paul says in all godliness and holiness, not just sinners doomed to repeat whatever sin we used to do, but in all godliness and holiness. When Paul says God wants everybody to come to a knowledge of the truth, he's talking about a God, the one and only God, who loves us so much that Christ laid down his life of his own accord. And Christ says he could have summoned many legions of angels to save himself. Matthew twenty six fifty three. but instead he laid down his life by his own choice, an act of love and grace to save us from our own formerly bad selves. And God did this, yes, because he acknowledges that we are in need of, of him. 
that we are in need of help. The good news is that he loves us anyways. That's why it says here that he desires it. Last Sunday I talked a little bit about how it would be bad if God simply pretended that we never sinned or pretended that we were never bad because then it's as if God doesn't actually care. But instead, nothing could be farther from the truth. God loved the world and you and I and us all so much that he sent his son to save us so that we might become more than simply sinners. That's not the message of the Bible, that that's all that we are and all that we can ever be. He sent his son to save us so that we might be way more than that. God came to sanctify us, to completely cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9, so that we might live our lives in Christ, you know, freed from the power of sin and its slavery. That's Romans chapter 8, and that we might live for God. You and I and anyone, we are not too far gone from God because nothing is too hard for Him. He desires all people to be saved. I want to say to everyone that we need to place our hope in Christ as our Lord and Savior. And, you know, even if we are saved already by further placing all of our trust in Him, giving more and more of ourselves to Christ, Christ can take over you more and more. One of my old professors used to say that the Holy Spirit goes from resident to president in your life. I believe that, as our passage says, God wants all people to be saved, and he's not messing around. I believe God will save you and save you completely. It's not just for another life. Well, why don't we all uh, come to a close this morning, and I'll say a word of prayer. And um, That'll be the close of the message this morning.